Well, uh, as I say, welcome back uh, to Romans. We saw last week we've hit the high point, uh, which is a wonderful place to be. The past six weeks we have been working with Paul, haven't we, through his laying the foundation of what this incredible gospel is that he is so unashamed of sharing with and challenging this faithful uh, Roman church. And that foundation of this gospel has one theme and one theme only, and that is summarized at the end of this long argument in verse 10 to 20 of chapter 3. We looked at that last week, the fact that no one is righteous, no one is right with God, and therefore everyone, verse 19, is left speechless. The law, says Paul, shows one thing, that we're all sinners, that none of us can meet it perfectly, that we are therefore all held accountable to God, and our mouths are stopped before him. We have no excuse, in other words. And having our mouths stopped is really important, because what's actually been going on in some of the verses that we have not yet had time to look at, verses 1 to 9 of chapter 3, which we'll do this morning, Paul is, is sort of fending off questions from an imaginary prosecutor, if you will, a, a, against this truth. Someone is coming back at Paul in these verses and saying, Oi, that's, not, that's just not true. Uh, at least it's not true of me, surely. Or, or what about this person? Aren't they righteous? Or, or what about this situation? D- doesn't that get me out of being under the judgment of God? And each time, Paul has to deal with those questions head on, and he will continue to do so all the way through the letter. Now, due to a a missed Sunday in Romans a few weeks back, and because of the Q&A Sunday last week, we haven't actually looked at those questions in any depth. And and I want to spend time on them this morning as an overview before looking very quickly at chapter 4, because all of those questions will help us understand what chapter 4 and Abraham specifically is here for, what, what it's got to do with Paul's argument for the gospel. So let's turn to chapter 3, verse 1 to 9, and look at these questions, these objections, all these challenges to Paul's gospel. We're going to be challenging the challenges, and we're going to see how Paul deals with them before we move on to chapter 4. And the first challenge is this, the first question is this, what advantage has the Jew, and what value is there in circumcision? Now, that might be a question we really aren't asking this morning. (laughs) We haven't come to church asking that question. But it is really helpful for us to see why it's been asked, and it's very important for us to see what the answer is. So why is this question being asked? Well, don't forget what's just happened before this. Chapter 2 has ended with Paul talking to the Jewish Christians, this big, strong church. This big, strong church is full of Gentile Christians and, and, and Jewish Christians. And he's saying to the, the, the Jewish Christians who are circumcised, he said, don't worry about circumcision. That, that, that physical mark on their body, that was something that they held on to as being significantly important before God. Paul is saying, well, that circumcision means nothing if you do not want to follow God and, and obey him in your hearts. And that would have been a shocking thing for a Jew to hear. You see, circumcision was the the sign for God's people that they were a part of God's family, chosen, loved, protected by God in the world. But Paul reminds the Jews here that external circumcision doesn't save you. Just because someone was circumcised doesn't mean they were truly under God's rule and blessing. Much like I know many people who I grew up with who were baptized, but they're definitively not Christians, they they don't want to follow the Lord Jesus. Baptism hasn't saved them. And so Paul rightly says then that circumcision was always meant to be a circumcision of the heart. 
an outward sign for something that happened inwardly to those who love God and wanted to follow him and trust him and obey him. That's what verse 27 of chapter 2 means. Then he who is physically circumcised, says Paul, but keeps the law will condemn you guys who have the written code and, and, and circumcision and all the, the value of religiosity, but, but you don't want to follow the Lord Jesus. You break his law. But, but why is this question being asked and what bearing does it have us on us today? Well, Paul is meeting the objection against the gospel that says, well, I have an outward appearance of biblical religion. And I think that means something to God. I think that does make me good enough for God. I went to church. I came from a Christian family. I've read the whole of the Bible. I listened to the Gospel Coalition podcast. So I'm not just a Christian, but I'm a sound Christian. Look at me and my outward religious appearances and my reformed background. God loves all that stuff. And as long as I keep going, I'll be all right with God. God loves that stuff. He loves me. And so can you see that Paul says to us who hold on to those things today, that those things, those outward things, as, as good as they might be, and we're going to be looking at what outward stuff looks like later on in the term, well, they are nothing. If you are not wanting to love God and follow the Lord Jesus and seek to put sin to death and obey this king in your heart. You see, Paul is not simply talking to the Jew, though he is in, in, in his context, but he's talking more generally to, to the religious moralist. Don't stand on your outward appearance as being enough to be saved. That won't help you. Verse 29 of chapter 2 sums it up perfectly. But a Jew, a, a real believer and son of God, in other words, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is from God and not from man. He, God sees in, inside the heart what everyone else doesn't see. And so to us today here at Redeemer, are we moralists? Are we people who look good on the outside but rotten on the inside? Are, are, are we a church who looks good and respectable but in our hearts and our private moments we're, we're nowhere near wanting to follow the Lord Jesus? Be really careful, says Paul. The gospel is never about outward appearance or external religion. It's always about the heart, your response to Jesus, what you do in private, how you follow God faithfully in all your quiet moments, behind closed doors, as much as it is in your public ones. That's what being a Jew, says Jesus. That's what being a faithful child of God today, says Paul, looks like. And so that helpfully brings us to the opening question of chapter 3, which now makes perfect sense. For then this questioner asks, well, what is the advantage of being a Jew? What was the point of all that? What, what was the value of being circumcision? Why even give it? That's a really good question. And Paul's response to that is quite remarkable. What does he say at the beginning of chapter 3? He says, much in every way. Sorry. <laughs> I thought you just said it wasn't worth anything. That's a surprise. Why does Paul say that, considering what he's just said? Well, because Paul continues saying that the Jews of the Old Testament were entrusted with the very oracles of God, the very words and actions and acts, in other words, instructions of God himself. And that is really important. Paul doesn't want to do away with the Jewish nation um, as, as it was always meant to be in the world, to, to, to be recipients of God's incredible promise that there would be a saviour king who would save the world, and that the Jews themselves would be the means by which this saviour king, Jesus, not only came about in that Jesus was born in the line of the Jews, in the line of Abraham, 
but that the Jews would be the people who were to tell the world about this king. The whole of the Old Testament is a Jewish text of God's incredible truth that, that we are holding in our hands this morning. It promises and foreshadows this Jesus that Paul is desperate to tell. You bet that's important, says Paul. Without the Jews, in other words, we wouldn't have the gospel we do today. We wouldn't have the example of grace as God calls pagan Abraham to be the father of his incredible people group, even though he had done nothing to deserve that. We're going to be looking at that, that just now. We wouldn't have the example of God's salvation rescue as he saves people from Egypt, from Pharaoh in the Exodus. We wouldn't have the example of God's spoken word, which changes and charges and judges hearts and wrongdoing if we didn't have the prophets. We, we wouldn't have the example of how God would rule the world perfectly with real justice and might through his chosen king if we didn't have King David, you see? Oh, says Paul, there's much to hold on to as a Jew, much worth, much value, much heritage in what has happened through God's hand, appropriate honor in what they were tasked with doing. It was an important job. And so the value of circumcision was that it was a sign that this people group were grateful to the God had given them so much. Circumcision was a sign that they wanted to trust in this God and in his promise to be faithful to him as he was to them. Trusting outwardly in the God who has saved them inwardly. And that point is what's so helpful for us today. It helps us not to counterbalance too far the other way, dismiss what we do outwardly. We don't dismiss that the fruits of the gospel that we are able to display and enjoy displaying having been saved in our hearts, praise God. I'm thankful to a God for a, a godly family, people in our lives who speak to us the gospel, an ability to work at sin. I, but I just don't rely on those things for salvation. Coming to church is a good and right response to what God has done in our hearts. Being baptized is a good and right external response to what God has done in our hearts. Obeying God, following Jesus faithfully, publicly, privately, everything that Romans 9 to 16 will talk about in heavy detail, being living sacrifices for Jesus. It's a good and right external response to what Jesus has done in our hearts. Bringing children up in the Lord, providing deep Christian heritage for generations to come. That's a good and right response to what Jesus has done in our hearts. Just as physical circumcision was a good and right response for the Jews. A stamp, a marker. Yes, God, you have worked in my heart through your incredible grace. Can you see? What, what value is there in circumcision? Much, says Paul. It just doesn't save you. It doesn't give you a heavenly advantage, but it is a beautiful sign of the God who has saved you. What value is there being baptized and, and coming weekly to church, faithfully going to events, living lives of integrity, following Jesus? Much in every way. They don't save, but they are beautiful signs of a God who has saved. And that brings us on to our next question. Because if that is true, that the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God that contain the salvation of God himself, the purest task you can imagine being given to any people group, then we have a problem, says the questioner. Because the Jews were not pure. In fact, says this imaginary questioner of Paul, they were downright faithless. That's our second challenge, verse 3. But what if even some of these Jews were faithless? Does that undo God's faithfulness? In other words... If these oracles were so great as to contain the promise of a faithful God, a God who has to act faithfully according to his salvation, doesn't the fact that the very people who were asked to carry this and show off this faithful message were themselves unfaithful? 
They were unfaithful to God. And, and, and doesn't that sort of sully his message? It doesn't work. The, 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 they make God look dirty. The message that he's this perfect message, it's been brutalized by faithless people. Much like a laundrette advertising their local business by knocking on doors, wearing filthy clothes and saying, look at me, come to our laundrette. It's brilliant, I promise you, it's the best laundrette in the area. You'd laugh at it, you'd go, well, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Well, no, says Paul, just because the Jews were faithless doesn't mean God is faithless or somehow dirtied by that. In fact, the opposite is true, verse 4. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you, God, may be justified in your words, prevailed when you judge. That quote is from Psalm 51, the great repentance psalm of King David. He'd slept with another man's wife. He'd killed her husband. He'd destroyed the good name of God in the kingdom, making God look bad. David turns in repentance to God and says, no, this sin is on me. I am so sorry. And in comparison to me, you look more faithful because you still love me and you still love your people, which is everything you said you would be like. You are justified, God, therefore, in your words, in front of my sin, you have the right to judge me because you are proven right. In other words, your oracles, your gospel, O God, tell me that all this is true and that you grant forgiveness if I repent. And you had every right to wipe me from the face of the earth, but you are proved more faithful because you will not forget your promises to love your people who you have saved. By no means does that mean, Redeemer, that the sin I, you, fall into, sometimes willingly do, as a believer, deny God's faithful work in or through his gospel. Can you see how these questions are so helpful for us? It begins to solidify this incredible gospel for us. No, you can't sin once too many times. No, you can't sin so much that God eventually says over the human race, you know what? I'm done. I'm so dirtied by this lot. It's just embarrassing. (laughs) I want nothing to do with this anymore. By no means, says Paul. Does a believer's faithlessness and struggle with sin deny God's goodness or make him weaker? The opposite is true. Our being lies where it proves his faithfulness to his own character. Which brings us brilliantly to the next question, which again makes perfect sense now. For the questioner, this silent prosecutor then turns to Paul and says, whoa, hang on a second. If that's the case, then why are you judging us for being bad? Verse five, if our unrighteousness like David's sin, serves to show up the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath and his judgment on us? In other words, if our sin makes God look more faithful, more better, more right, more holy, then isn't that to God's benefit? How dare he then judge me for my sin, which makes him look good? He should be thanking me. And this silent questioner continues making the same point, verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not, therefore, do more evil that more good may come? Can you see? If my sinning makes God look more pure and good and right and just and faithful, more glorified, why am I being condemned? In fact, by that logic, we should be sinning more, and you should be thanking me for it because you're becoming more glorified, God. Well, what's Paul's answer to that? Verse 6, by no means again. He likes that term. For then how could God judge the world? In other words, if all that is true, God is callous and evil and he cannot judge. 
He has no right, for he isn't God and he isn't good if he secretly wants evil to win so that he benefits. That train of thinking just doesn't match up with God's character, Paul is saying. In fact, so twisted is this logic that Paul simply says at the end of verse 8 that people who think like this, desiring to do evil under the twisted sense that God secretly wants it, well, their, their condemnation is just. And so all these questions bring us back to the main question that's being asked, which is now sort of repeated in reverse in verse 9 of chapter 3. So uh, are the Jews any better off? That's the crux of it. In other words, when all is said and done, Paul, even if there's much to be said for the role of the Jewish nation in history, and that God still loves and cares for them, even when they're faithless, are they better off under God's righteousness? Are are they more savable somehow? Is there a salvation benefit for the Jew? In our case today, is there a salvation benefit for the religious moralist who has religious pedigree on their side? Is there a benefit? Are there bonus heaven points for those who have been steeped in wholesome, true, evangelical-sound, external, reformed Christianity? No. Verse 10. There isn't. For all, both Jews and Greeks, those who have the written heritage of God, those who don't are under sin, as it is written, no one is righteous, not even one. You see, this is the bedrock of Paul's argument for the gospel. Everyone in your church, faithful Roman church, has to understand if if you are going to grow more as faithful Christians, if you're going to be strengthened in your faith, if you're going to fully depend on Jesus for your salvation and nothing else, if you are to be unashamed of the gospel, which is the power of God for all who believe, then you must know that you are equally condemned under the law. None of you can keep it perfectly. All of you are natural sinners and none of you have an advantage. And that really is very good news. Because as we saw last week, once we get to that point, it means that everyone can come to Jesus for forgiveness. Literally everyone. We're all in the same boat. Everyone can receive this perfect righteousness from God. Verse 21 that we looked at last week. Everyone can have this righteousness that's been made known from outside of the law. None of us are cut off from God's being able to receive God's goodness if we come to him. This righteousness of God can come through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Because all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All who come to Jesus are justified, declared innocent before God, in other words, made perfectly righteous. All are offered this free gift of God's grace, his unmerited favor to be received from him with nothing in return. All, verse 24, are redeemed, brought back from death to life through Christ having paid the debt of our sin. All, verse 25, have had God's rightful anger and punishment removed from us and placed on Jesus who died on the cross for our sin in our place as a propitiation as a, as a God-wrath take, and that's what that word means. All this happens, all these incredible realities, salvation through redemption, propitiation, sacrifice, grace, all these big words, all this, this sort of multifaceted, many-faced, doubly, triply, quadruply, perfectly locked, fully whole, fully absorbed salvation happens to people who know they are not good who know they need God's goodness and who do believe and trust in this Jesus who will, will, will save them and keep them for an eternity. Guys, there are lots of words in Romans. And we've had to do a lot of unpacking some deep arguments, some difficult questions. But all of it boils down to this one truth. We are all equally lost. No one, and no one is too lost or too sinful for God in his goodness to love and save us through his son. And what have we added to this, this, this incredibly comprehensive process? Absolutely nothing. 
All of us have sinned, and therefore it means that all of us can come to Jesus, and those who do are saved by God's free gift of salvation through grace. Which means, finally, as we come quickly to chapter 4, that none of us, verse 27, can boast. This brings us to this quickly to this second part of Paul's argument before we head on uh, next, uh, after half term to the second half of this first bit of the book. For the final question is this, what then shall we, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, why is this question asked? Well, if anyone can boast in his own goodness and faithfulness, surely it is Abraham, the father of God's chosen people, the one who is known for being the most faithful, godly person in the world. Surely Abraham has something to say, something to offer, something to give back to this God when it comes to salvation. Well, let's let's just see that. Chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. Just read that quickly with me. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David, that King David, speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Can you see what's going on here? Paul is saying, no, not even Abraham can boast in anything. He was called righteous. He was given this righteousness that comes from God apart from the law, not because he was good or because he did something, but because he believed that God was good and would do something for him. Abraham, if you remember back when we looked at his life in Genesis, were given promises by God that he would have a son, that Abraham would be the father of many nations, even though, as this passage reminds us, he was all but dead, 100 years old. He was promised that billions of children would come from his line. And did God promise that to Abraham because he was squeaky clean? No. In fact, he was a liar. He was a cheat. He was a swindler. He was duplicitous. He pawned off his own wife for financial advantage. He was not good. But he trusted in a God who he believed would save him, who he believed would act on his promise and give him a nation and blessing. It was not his works, says Paul, that made him right with God. It was belief and trust in God who would give him his goodness. Not like someone who earns a wage by working hard. That's what verse 4 is talking about. That's not what happened to Abraham. God didn't owe Abraham anything. God didn't look at Abraham and go, my goodness, there is an incredible person. I, I really want to save him. And so righteousness was credited to Abraham's account. That's an amazing phrase. Like a deposit of a million pounds credited into your account where you're deep in debt and you've done nothing to earn it. And the bank manager turns around and says, oh yeah, there you go, there's your million pounds. You're now totally free from debt. Go on your way. Abraham believed in the promise of a good God. Abraham believed in the promise of Christ, the perfect son who would come from his own line and who would save his people. Even though he didn't even know what that looked like. Abraham then was credited, given goodness, despite his acts of sin. So he cannot boast before God or before man. He was saved by grace. 
proven, said Paul, bring us back to the earlier question, that the physical sign of circumcision came after God credited Abraham with righteousness. Just look at that, verse, verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? Well, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. It's black and white. What came first? God's salvation given by a free gift of his grace or Abraham's external sign of religion and goodness? God's salvation given by a free gift of his grace. That came first. Circumcision and acts of goodness were not done by Abraham and God looked on him and said, I want him to be saved. No. God chose him while he was still a sinner. Jews, says Paul, to this big church, they would have had lots of Jews in it asking about whether all the Christians, all the Gentiles should be, should be circumcised. Perhaps thinking that they're on a higher spiritual plane, Paul says to them, guys, you have an incredible, advantage, incredible heritage, but even your incredible father of the faith had to be saved by grace. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus, in his promise, like Abraham did? And that brings us on the home straight. For why is it so important that we know that this happened to Abraham? We're not Jewish. Even those of us who say, I don't want to be a religious moralist. I get this. I do want to be standing on my grace. Why do we still need to know this? Why does this faithful church still need to know all this news? Why do we sitting here, 21st century, everyone need to know this? Well, the second half of verse 11 tells us of chapter 4. Because, in fact, Abraham specifically being saved by grace is everything to us sitting here today. Verse 11, the purpose of all of this, says Paul, of Abraham being saved with righteousness credited to him was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Can you see? So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father had but, but before he was circumcised. You see, Abraham had to be saved before he was circumcised. He had to be saved before outward signs of faithfulness so that we, he could be the father of us who had no outward sign of faithfulness. So that he could be the father not just of the Jews, but, but us, the Gentiles. We didn't have the sign. We didn't have the promises. We didn't have the heritage. And God looks at Abraham and said, well, that's okay, because Abraham didn't either. You are a chip off the old block. You are like your father. And you come to know this Jesus in exactly the same way, trusting as he did in God and in his good salvation. And I am so thankful for that. Because I'm not circumcised. I'm not Jewish. But more importantly, I'm not good. And I need there to be a way for all of those things to be undone and brought into his line. I'm in the same boat as Abraham. I am like my dad. I am born into his line. And that means I am saved by the same righteousness. It is credited to my account. Verse 16. That is why all this depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be granted to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to the inherents of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Can you see? How can I, a non-Jew, 
uncircumcised, be born into that physical line. I, I, I can't be. No amount of science can get me to be born into someone else's family line. That can only happen through grace. Grace alone engrafts me into this family line of faith. Grace alone makes it possible for me to somehow be spiritually reborn as a faithful son of Abraham and therefore a recipient of the promise and the inheritance of salvation given to his family, just as grace alone makes it somehow possible that God's perfect righteousness in Christ is wholly placed on deeply imperfect me. And this brings us to our close. The end of chapter 4, before we move on to chapter 5 in two weeks' time. Verse 22, 25, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Because it was not just for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham was credited righteousness. He had done nothing to show for it so that we could be we, those of us sitting in the chairs this morning who are not good, who know we are not good, who know we need to be saved, can come to him and allow him to die in our place and be justified, made right before him. Redeemer, the gospel is an astonishing thing. And Abraham is here at the end of this first argument of this incredible gospel for our deep assurance. For those here today who don't know this Jesus, be an Abraham. Come to God with nothing, knowing that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness, trusting God's promise to save you and to give you his righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for you and he rose again for you. Today is the best day to do that. But for everyone else, for anyone here who has called on the name of the Lord Jesus in faith, for those of us with rich evangelical reformed high church religious pedigree, for those who have nothing of the kind, from the person feeling they are making progress in their sanctification, the one who is really struggling with sin and doubt, to those who are crushed by the weight of their sin, the darkness of their past, their fear of the future, for those who feel they really have sinned once too many times, for every single one of us, if we have trusted in Jesus, knowing we come to him with nothing, we are saved, says the gospel. And we are saved by grace. We are sons and daughters of Abraham, such that someone can call on the name of the Lord and die before they are confirmed, before showing signs of external religion and be present with him in glory. We have a righteousness of God that comes from outside of the law, and we will be presented before him for those of us who come to him in faith, washed from all unrighteousness. And that, says the God of Abraham, through Abraham, is my eternal promise. Well, let me pray for us uh, before we come to the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this wonderful gospel message. Thank you for this incredible encouragement of assurance. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that we are saved by your incredible grace. Thank you for the example of Abraham that reminds us that the very best people in the Bible had nothing to offer you and that you chose them and that you called them, that you sent your spirit after them, that you gave them this righteousness purely by your grace. Heavenly Father, help us to be people who, 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 who want to tell this gospel. Father, for, for people here who don't know Jesus, I pray, and those who are watching online as well, those who are listening online, 
I pray that they would see Jesus as being everything for them, the one who promises to save, the the one who invites them to, to ask for forgiveness, to see that they are not good before him and to see that he has done everything for them on the cross, taken their sin, taken their death and giving them his incredible life. Heavenly Father, may they come to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith. May we be preaching this gospel to those who don't know it. And Father God, may we not rest on our religiosity, our outward experiences. May we not trust in the things that we do to make us look good before you. May we not see those things or idolize those things which we think save us. Heavenly Father, may we come to the Lord Jesus Christ daily, repent to him, follow him, and trust and depend on him for all of our salvation, knowing with full assurance that that having happened, we are destined to be with God forever. We pray all these things. Thanking you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.